Hello everybody and welcome to this new episode. My name is Sarah and this is Amsterdamus, the podcast that introduces you to amazing women from Amsterdam. During the summer of 2020, Belarus, its president Lukashenko and police brutality against peaceful protesters were all over the world's news. Since then, the country has disappeared from the media. The world is looking in another direction now. But that doesn't mean that the situation in Belarus has changed. My guest for today is Tasha Alova, a filmmaker from Belarus, currently living in the Netherlands, who is using her art as an outlet to process what is still happening in her country every single day. Welcome, Tasha Alova. Hi, uh, thank you, Sarah. Nice to be here. What brought you to the Netherlands? Um, so I came here four years ago uh, for my studies in the art academy. Did you experience a culture shock when you came here? Uh, not right away. I would say it, it's been <laughs> evolving through through some time. So I think um, to say like through studies, through discussing certain topics, uh, finding like difference in culture. Not sure if I overcame it, <laughs> but I think <laughs> almost. <laughs> What was the worst part? The one that you were struggling with the most? I think culture surrounding hospitality because it's quite common in a way. I'm used to get like a um, contact faster and it's quite crucial to invite home like your new account, like friends or people you know and like I remember first time somebody <laughs> didn't respond to my invitation <laughs> and I thought like wow it was really rude but then I realized it's maybe not was a good oh I had to say close connection enough to invite this person right away I don't know it just like didn't work so but for me that was a uh, <laughs> shock because I said like oh this person didn't like me <laughs> but uh, yeah you are a filmmaker what is your work focused on uh, I'm still exploring I think uh, I was recently talking uh, to an, uh, one creator and he told like yeah just <laughs> keep on going and somebody write about it later on <laughs> like you know uh, what, what does it exactly mean but um, in my work I've been touching like some topics of being present and absence in the space also i've made a short film about my mother but rather about me coming back after years back home and kind of being half present half absence like recognizing some i don't know soft coach and and and, and some tradition but also like not feeling already like you're in home but visiting yeah And uh, my last film, uh, The Revolution, it's uh, it's about my own experience uh, of last year, 2020, uh, when big protests started in Belarus. And uh, I tried to, in my film, I'm trying to convince someone that it's very important, this historical moment, you have to know about it. And, and all, like, what happened next, uh, this hopes and uh, ideas about revolution and how that evolves. I will come back to the topic of Belarus in a second. I just have one more question before that. Mm -hmm. What are the reactions that you have received for your work as a filmmaker so far? Different. Like for the last films, there was some, 
like so different reactions like somebody told it like so, someone cried someone said it's uh, depressive someone told it's me- how to say meditative <laughs> so like and most of the time people don't tell because they kind of experience something and they go and but with a film about my mother like a lot of people could recognize something they experienced because um, they left their home and uh, this feeling of coming back to your parents house and uh, trying to fit it I think a lot of people could recognize certain feelings I have seen your film 26 years of patience oh, yeah mm-hmm. and I have to say I flinched the first time you did the thing I don't want to I don't want to spoiler it so I'm not going to to give the details because I want people to watch it but I really flinched <laughs> like is she really doing that like yeah she is okay yeah it was um emotional response uh, I've been in Amsterdam and I had like I felt so helpless uh, I wanted to be in the street and Minsk I wanted to be I wanted to react some way and then I thought okay I can make a video or way I emotionally response to what was happening in Belarus so then I made this kind of uh, performative <laughs> video it was it was very like fast it was like in one second I just got the idea and just made it I think it was really intense you found a very unique way to show how helpless you felt and how frustrating the situation was for you being unable to to do anything about the events in your country thank you (laughs) for those who do not know so much about it could you please quickly sum up what has recently happened in belarus there's a tough (laughs) tough topic i think the bad thing would be to like to stop the audio now and <laughs> people go and, and read a little bit about it because I feel it's 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 a long story and then if you ask like to make it short you know it's uh, definitely <clears throat> misses a lot of details but more or less okay short <laughs> uh, last year um, I mean with COVID situation in Belarus was really bad because officially also uh, like the president of the country Lukashenko he didn't recognize existence of COVID. I think it was a lot of on media because it was like a laughing sort of about it. Like he told like you should go to sauna and drink vodka. But it was actually pretty scary because, you know, everybody saw what was happening around the world. So uh, cities and countries were closed and in Belarus there was no nothing almost. Uh, there was like rejection of COVID, but actually people uh, were sick and they died. That was really, I think that kind of stepped into a feeling of safety a lot like so it didn't like the government didn't care about people it was really visible and although kind of regime was for the last maybe yeah 26 years this time i think it's like the situation touched like majority of people and it's happened that there were election coming <laughs> in august 2020 yeah suddenly i mean there were a few very good candidates who managed to get a lot of support and um it was like some kind of awakening of people who went to street to protest, which is normally, you know, it's dangerous and a lot of people uh, would be afraid. And um, it was never such wide, widespread. So it started, I think, in May 2020 and the election were in August and it escalated uh, every day and kind of maybe the world for, for the world it was not that visible, let's say, because, I mean, Belarus was not so much of interest. But for people who lived in the country, like we know that uh, th- those kind of protests, like um, 
all the events what was happening was leading to something big. And then elections happened. Uh, I mean, I won't tell the whole story, but okay, there was a biggest protest in history of Belarus and it was the biggest violence probably also in recent I mean I'm not talking about <laughs> Stalinist time but <laughs> I'm talking about yeah contemporary Belarus so it was biggest repression a lot of violence uh, a lot of people went through tortures people were killed during protests uh, somebody disappeared so and it was everybody knew about it so the protest continues till November until it was so violently dispersed so right now, the situation that a lot of people got uh, sentenced, a lot of people left the country, All m- most media were closed, uh, most NGOs are closed, so it's, and country is isolated. And, and the story, of course, you heard, probably everybody heard about Protosevich, it was one of the journalists, when the plane was uh, put down <laughs> to arrest him. That was more like sensational news, but it was also terrifying uh, how they break like this person, sort of, that be, be, he was a position and then he started to work, collaborate with the regime, and nobody know what, what exactly they did to him. It, it's pretty scary uh, what was happening. A lot of people left the country, and right now there are so many political prisoners. You cannot, so uh, basically, I think, I mean, political prisoners are the people who are officially recognized as political prisoners, but also there are, there are like uh, 800 people. Uh, officially recognized, but there are thousands of people who are in the courts, in related um, courts, and, and, and also I mean, we saw the whole collapse, how the system happened, and you see there is no justice, and people can come to somebody, like a KGB or whoever, can come to somebody's house and raid it, uh, journalists got sentenced, uh, some people got like two years, five years, uh, opposition leaders, 14 years, 11 years in prison, and I think the biggest sentence was so far 18 years um, for a person who leaked information about violence in police and all this recording. So that's more or less the situation. You said previously that you feel very helpless. Could you describe a bit more what your emotions are regarding the things that are happening in your country? How are you coping emotionally? And maybe I would need to come back because it's, it's a different stage now, um, pretty much a different stage than when, when it all started. I think I have felt helpless uh, in the beginning when there was a big protest because I believe many of Belarusians had a good intuition that something is going to happen. And uh, my helplessness was not really related that I was far away. My helplessness was that I saw that uh, international media, Dutch media, didn't pay attention. They didn't uh, felt there was something going to happen or they responded. And and since I'm based in the Netherlands, I tried to contact some media and I'm not a journalist. I just, you know, felt like the urge and need to approach them. And uh, there was not much response, maybe because they didn't know. Maybe I don't know how media works uh, here. But for me, it was like, you know, like shouting, like, something is going to happen, something is going to happen, like, you know, uh, like there is a fire and and nobody is paying attention. And uh, that's the only thing I could talk about sort of f- f- for a few months. And it's also, yeah, this kind of difficulties that you have some passion and concerns and fears and it was difficult to share it. So people around, of course, couldn't get as much emotional as I was, although it, we found a good connection with within diaspora so it was like a similar feeling i know that people were not you know when, when i i went to belarus actually uh, i'm glad i was there i kind of i know how it's felt inside 
but uh, when the internet was shut down uh, for for three days, when uh, most protests happened, I know people didn't sleep like abroad. There was no news, so country just you know like a complete blackout and then this horrifying images of wounded people of all the images released i think it was even more scary to be abroad and, and just follow the news and then uh i think another part it comes like um it's kind of anxiety which comes it doesn't necessarily you know have, it can be anything i mean like when you know there was covid and we didn't know what's happening it was like this anxiety you follow the news and this kind of thing. So it was a similar but a different feeling when I was following news and uh, it was just getting worse and worse and it was kind of sliding out of agenda in media and then, you know, at first people were like crave, like uh, applauding for the biggest protest, for brave, peaceful protest. But then it was very scary when you feel like that's going to get really bad and people are getting sentenced or they disappear in the street and they like in a week somebody find out that they're in prison and then sort of regime started to win over and then that was really hard to realize that no one is going to help like i don't know for me it was like this idea that okay but we are so close you know we're neighboring the european union and um there was so much attention and it was so big thing so something can be done like there were tortures it was recognized fact so many and it was very painful to realize that how, how to keep on going how to carry on and um, and especially like in winter when there was the sentences and back then we were afraid like now it's it's, it's a it's a terrible but you know a person can get, get used to anything it's strange how much less emotional response it's getting now we like again people are frustrated but you can't keep on this uh, mode like you need some kind of coping mechanism. For example, for Maria Kolesnikova, one of opposition leader, it took like a year before the court gave the sentence and she received like 11, 11 years in prison. And then if it would happen when she was just stolen in the street in September a year ago, I think people would go again to protest because um, there was power and there was a mood. And then it was so much exhausted. Like everybody was so much, I think also in Belarus, tired from news, tired from bad news, tired from helplessness anywhere, like abroad or inside. People were like, it's terrifying. And and that's it, you know. And then, okay, how can we, okay, we're going to send uh, letters to political prisoners. How can we support, like, um, how can we do something? But there was a, a moment when it was kind of deep depression, like this feeling of being helplessness, of this kind of, I don't know, like talks or anything felt like ridiculous while people are in in prisons in in very bad conditions so but in the end like now uh, I, i'm finding some peace and i think a lot of people uh, yeah f- find their way to cope with it and uh, do what you can do sort of and also i recently talked with a friend and he told like yeah i don't share like like people, people who are sentenced now, they don't need us uh, being how to say. Yeah, like you can only help when you're when you're okay, when you have energy, when you're you don't have to be down just because of you know because it's strange, but uh, the guilty feelings I think we most of Belarusians had the the ones who were not in prison, and that's also actually in the end that stop you from doing things where you can be helpful. But that's kind of uh, different stages, and uh, now I'm I'm actually uh, saying that on personal scale, uh, certain actions are more um, 
fulfilling. So, for example, to write a letter to a political prisoner and try to help one person may be more fulfilling than, like, give a talk and try to, like, you know, <laughs> inspire others, but rather, like, make something on, on your own. Sort of. If you had stayed in Belarus, would you have been able to do your work as a filmmaker as you're doing it now? Yeah, it's a difficult question. I mean, I, I'm not sure if I... Uh, would be even able to stay. Um, I, I mean, I didn't live in Belarus for many years already, for quite some time. And the level of anxiety uh, when I was there in August, I couldn't cope with it. Like, I'm quite a sensitive person. And, uh, like, you have to know how to be... Like, I don't know, a lot of friends, they managed to, like, go for protest while it was so dangerous. And I don't think I would be able to function. Like, I, I don't think also people could make, as it's like a long process, a lot of people couldn't do any work, actually, while being in Belarus, because it's just so much pressure. So, and, and it's very difficult. I mean, anything can be recognized as a protest, like, a, I don't know, a piece of white paper on your balcony can be recognized. Like, people get so, yeah, it's so insane. But but still, there are artists and there are filmmakers, I know, and one of filmmakers I know, he in purpose stays in Belarus. He wants to be in this moment of time. He probably wants to make work about it. So it's a personal decision, probably. Do you consider yourself an activist? Yeah, I've been thinking about it. <laughs> I think probably more like a cultural um, activist, not in a direct sense. Because I met when I met like activists who actually helping to uh, kind of save people. Like I don't know, other activists in Belarus sometimes they fled, let's say, in the night. <laughs> on a border and there are actually people who help those people and uh, my tools um, in a way what I did so far it was exhibition it was more like of education so maybe in some sense it's activism but uh, last time somebody asked me when we were together in this meeting like are you human right defender and I'm like no <laughs> I mean <laughs> it's a um, I think it's yeah I don't want to take more than I am doing I'm, I'm just I'm an artist and I'm trying through art to tell the story of people. And it's more, I think, has to do with art and also some kind of information. <laughs> Why do you think it's difficult for you to make people, especially in the Netherlands, understand the situation of your country and the people in it? Because you said they didn't really pick up the story you were trying to share with them last summer. Yeah, because I think you have to know uh, the context and then... Like, for me, it was important also every detail. But uh, I do think people can relate. It's just, like, so much now uh, focused on, like, sort of, you know, countries, nations. So everybody has already their kind of pre-justice. So if you say, like, Belarus, I'm like, oh, I know something about it. And they have their own thoughts, whatever. And But if you think uh, what people need in life, Like, you know, they want their family to be safe. They want to have uh, ability to, to work. I mean, in a way, if you think that you're here in the Netherlands and your family is okay and someone there in Belarus, the same kind of family, but their daughter in prison and they have to go every week and bring like a parcel and not being able to see their daughter for like next two years <clears throat> or like one year. I think then people can relate. But when you start to... It's in, it's strange. I mean, a person should be willing to know what's happening. And I think my mistake was I was trying to tell to everyone. I thought everyone has to know. If they know the whole story, they would definitely react differently. There would be so much compassion about it. 
And um, and another thing is like I think people are afraid of other people pain, so it's naturally like a protection to sort of a bit of distance from it. And maybe that was a trick what I made in my film. I don't tell about what country I'm talking about, <laughs> so you cannot have your prejudices. You just listen to a human story, and I think on human level we can all understand. You know, it's like universal um, stories of not like universal stories, but like of course. You can understand if, if you're like a mother, you can understand somebody's mother whose child in prison now, or lover, or you know, like this kind of things. You can relate, or I think activists can understand each other when you have to, when the crowd don't understand what are you doing, and then like you're still making some fight. So I think there are way to connect, ways to connect. I'm just some people are more sensitive and some people less, and I think it's easier to tell to people who actually want to tell uh, to hear the story. It's always make it easier and they make their own research and then they ask only just some details, let's say. You and I have actually met at a panel talk in Amsterdam at the Bali about the question how safe the European Union is for journalists. Mm -hmm. And you gave a presentation there yeah. about the situation in your country. Do you sometimes feel that you're turned into some sort of spokesperson for an entire country? Yeah, I'm trying to uh, kind of uh, escape it or not not to be there. And uh, but with this presentation, I thought I could I could give some input or a valuable input because there was like moments when I would be uh, just asked to speak or like you know like to media <clears throat> just as a Belarusian here in the Netherlands and like what do you feel or and that was nice and I could specifically tell or and in some moment I just didn't feel like sharing anymore because it was like some kind of yeah like <laughs> use of emotions and I, I I didn't want that to share and that situation for this presentation I mean I cannot change uh, people's mind <laughs> they can think I'm a spokesperson for Belarus but at least I mean I was happy that I could I could tell that story in that way uh, in more so people could relate a little bit more to it but I don't want to be a spokesperson for Belarus. I know it's uh, I'm also just one voice from many. So, but I'm more or less okay with it already. If I have a chance, if I feel like I can make a valuable input, uh, for example, now we plan um, to make like some kind of workshops with students uh, together with Movies That Matters Festival, and uh, I feel that I like I want this engagement. I want young people to know more. I want them to think. And work on, on, on and learn about situation. So I say, okay, here I feel valuable. I will do it. And if somebody tried to put me like a spokesperson, so no, I'm not. I'm just yeah. Uh, I cannot talk about anything. I have like a specific areas of my knowledge or interests. That's and I'm yeah. So I honestly hope with this podcast, you feel like it has some sort of added value to it. <laughs> yeah. I'm not taking you as a spokesperson for an entire country. <laughs> Thank you. I <laughs> appreciate it. Yeah. You told me in one of our preparation meetings that it usually makes you anxious when people ask you if you are safe. Mm. Could you please explain what you mean by this? Yeah, it was also particularly related to um, exhibition we were making in August. Um, in the Hague, and then uh, like a journalist asked me, "Do you feel safe?" And it was just right after there was an activist in Ukraine found uh, dead. We are making this exhibition in the Hague, and anyway, like concerned about safety of people who are coming, let's say from Belarus, and uh, and then like this question is just was triggering. 
like now I think I, I took some days off, I took some uh, rest and I am feeling more calm. And I also understand precisely that probably I'm not the most dangerous person to the regime. Let's say, yeah, so I can imagine that another person would feel unsafe. But I, I think the, the problem with this question, it's not sensitive. So like if person, it's, it's not a good question anyway. So if you don't feel anxious, I mean, it's like it's a bad situation. It's like I, I was just thinking like an example, like if you're, let's say, your, I don't know, relative or mother in a hospital and somebody asks you, are you anxious? Is it a good question? Are you uh, uh, like, <laughs> what would be the good answer for it? Like, it doesn't man meant to calm you down. This question doesn't meant to make you feel safe. It's just like some kind of curiosity, but a bit, I think, yeah, a bit insensitive, because um, you, yeah, you just don't want to think about this question. A lot of people do work; they have on their mind that it may be dangerous, but they don't want that to happen. So uh, why trigger this additional anxiety, unnecessary anxiety? And also, it's like I think it's a bad question for for the media because then it triggers more anxiety. Why do you spread anxiety? We are making like art exhibition. It's about empowerment. It's about giving a place for strong voices. Let's focus on that. Why do you like you know bring again anxiety? Maybe to defend some journalists here yeah. because I very much agree with you that they very often don't care about your answer because they just want very gruesome details that they can use as a quote afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, Belarusians felt unsafe. In the <laughs> that was the article one. It's awesome. <laughs> But I actually asked the question to find out if it's safe for the person to talk to me, for example. Yeah. So I... Okay, but would you put it on camera or not? No, I usually do that previously, before the interview. I ask them, is it safe for you to talk to me? Yes, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the difference. That's the difference. So it's a, then it's about comforting a person and knowing his ability to, or her ability to talk. And then when it's on a camera, that's was my question was on the camera. Do you feel safe here? And like, I have to make a statement. Do I feel safe here or not? Because Netherlands is such a great, a safe country, but even here, Belarusian feel unsafe, you know? I mean, I'm just ridiculating. <laughs> but it's like, and then like, you know what's happening in Ukraine? And then also here, they also don't feel unsafe. And it's like, news, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Sorry, it's just... <laughs> I mean, I just saw how it's made, and sometimes for me it feels like a bit r ridiculous because I, I, I cannot make news, you know. I'm, I, yeah, from from my feelings, let's say. <laughs> What do you think how the situation in Belarus is going to develop throughout the next few months or maybe the next few years? I don't know. It's uh, like it's pretty bad, and I don't think it's gonna get better. Like recently, there was a terrible accident, or not? There was. Uh, I don't know the details, but like armed people came with a search to the house and it's turned to be that the man had a gun and there was like two people killed. And I think, and, and then like, uh, I don't know, you know, like what can happen? Like nobody expected it was like, uh, I think, guy working in IT and who knows. But I think um, for some people, yeah, if it continues like this, I don't know how people can react. But uh, generally, yeah, it's a... It, It's pretty, I don't know, like Belarus seems now pretty much isolated. I don't know if you know that okay, there are no flights also to European countries. People cannot leave, uh, cannot receive tourist visa, for example, even. So it's it's now there is another situation on the border with Poland, Lithuania, like uh, with the migrants. 
from the Middle East who are stuck between. So they're building like a huge wall between like Belarus and Poland. So it's like it seems. I mean, there are different situations evolving and and economically also not so good. So it's hard to predict. Now it's also a very bad situation with COVID. I know that um, uh, hospitals are overcrowded. So so um, it's yeah. It's difficult to say, but like I know that people who are left, yeah, in uh, who left the country, they're still working, they're doing something. So um, yeah, but predict is really difficult. And uh, I mean, some people just keep on living sort of normal life. So, but I think those violations, this like severe violations uh, of human rights, of yeah, this all, this has to be somehow investigated. I think that that's that's, that's not forgotten. So in the surface, you can say it's it's calm and maybe nothing is happening but it's not forgotten for people it's a it's a huge tra- trauma for many people yeah i don't think i think that people who suffered or their relatives they can live that alone i can understand that people who are in prisons their main um, relatives they're concerned just to keep going uh like caring caring about uh, their families uh but for people who manage to be outside and they keep on working on doing something i don't know if it's going to change the regime but I hope there will be some justice one day, at least. What can our listeners or people in general do to support you, your work, and people in and from Belarus? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of uh, possibilities on a personal level. I would say start with a personal. <laughs> It's important now there are a lot of people in prisons in Belarus, and um, some of them are like famous um, activists or artists, and they receive uh, attention and uh, letters. And uh, some people, just a general, I don't know, uh, like students or workers or, I mean, anyone, and they receive huge sentences. So if you want to follow the situation, there is a website, even for people from abroad. You can, there are a lot of volunteers programs who are organized by Belarusians, so you don't have to invent. <laughs> you just have to ask probably uh, in general what people need, I think, if, if there is an organization they want to help. But on a personal level, you can find this website, Kletochku, I think. I, I, we can put probably the link to it. But it's, uh, and also Spring Spring 96, it has a full information about political prisoners. So you can find a person whom you like or who you maybe uh, want to support. And then you can establish some kind of relation. So there is this website where you can send your letter in English and volunteers will translate it, write it down and send it this person and it's difficult it's means uh, commitment because you can't just like you know pick up a friend and then like forgot about uh, them but uh that's what i'm actually doing now so i want to establish a connection with the one person uh who i know got five years sentence there are some rules what you can write what you cannot but i mean if you write in english of course they will not receive the letter uh but through this website volunteers will translate it so they can Or you can just help, you know, uh, because it's all volunteer help. You can just donate money so people, because they just, the service working, like people just uh, work for free and they also buy all the envelopes and they do the work. So you can support this project. We can put a link for it. It's just like on a personal scale. And and besides, there are a lot of communities. So uh, there are different kind of help which is needed for journalists, for media. Like sometimes, you know, it can be a workshop an investigative journalist, whatever, online. Like, there are different um, parts of societies, and I would just think what is relatable, what is your area of expertise, and um, 
Yeah, and I just ask because I mean there are a lot of information uh, also online. There are a lot of uh, initiatives which are helping, uh, for example, for asylum seekers or for people who need uh, to get education. Or I mean, <clears throat> there are ways to connect. But I, I don't think it's it's like it's already functioning anyway. So if you that that means like some kind of commitment and engagement. So a person who is willing to engage need to also research and ask around. And find out because it needs some investment of time. Dear listeners, I will put all the links in the show notes. If you want more information, you can find them there. If you want to support the organizations that Tasha has just mentioned, you can definitely find everything you need in the show notes. And a last question on a personal note. What are your plans for the future? My plans? <laughs> I'm, I'm now in, on a residency in Amsterdam. So I'm um, planning to be here. My visa, <laughs> like I'm still waiting for reply for my visa. It's it's something like just underneath. They like say like, oh, we'll answer you not in October but in May. <laughs> but I hope that will be all right. I will work on some new projects, probably a new film. And meanwhile, uh, I said like I'm always like saying like, no, I can't <laughs> do anything public anymore. I'm just so done. And then like you know, uh, somebody else like, oh, can you do this? And like. Yeah, I can. <laughs> so uh, we'll do something. I think uh, I will do something on Belarus, but more in relation to the Netherlands, like trying to find a way maybe how we can connect activist initiatives or something like this. And I will see. Maybe maybe it will be something unexpected will come out. Tasha, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I understand it's not the easiest topic ever, but I personally wish you... The best of luck and great success with your work. Thank you. Thank you for your really like sensitivity to the topic. And I, I, felt, uh, I felt really safe. <laughs> That's great. I'm very happy about it. Thank you so much. Thank you. And this also marks the end of today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Stay tuned if you want to meet more amazing women from Amsterdam. And please don't forget to follow Amsterdam on Instagram and on Facebook. Thanks and take care, everybody. Bye.